Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or... Well, you know what it is, even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, January 31st, 2017. This is episode 1942 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, good one, Just Jack Show today. We are going to talk about edible ornamentals, uh, specifically growing food right in plain sight of the blue hairs and HOAs and in other situations where you might have to do that. The reluctant spouse that wants everything to be pretty or whatever it would be. Uh, before we get into a little bit about what we're going to talk about today, I just want to point something out to you. January 31st, 2017, one-twelfth of the year is now gone like a fart in the wind. What are you doing for your individual liberty, your personal liberty, your family's liberty, your self-sufficiency, your self-reliance and independence? Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. Just a friendly public service announcement reminder that if you're not working toward greater liberty and freedom and self-sufficiency in your life, life is moving you in the other direction. You don't have a choice. You either move or you get moved. Anyway, so today we're going to talk about one way that you can do that, which is growing your own food. I'll tell you how we uh, came up with this subject today. It was about... Now, it was about two hours before I hit the record button here. I jumped on the TSP Zello channel, which I highly recommend you consider becoming part of that group of people. They're awesome people. It's an incredible community. I said, hey, it's Jack. And they said, no, it's not Jack. You're never on here anymore. And then when they believed it was me, I said, hey, do you guys got some subjects for today that maybe something I could do? And they had some good ones, and it was like, you know, like... I could do that one, but it would take about a week of research, so maybe I'll do that in the future. I need one I could do, like, now. And uh, somebody came out and said, you know, I live, like, in this HOA hellhole, and I want to be able to grow my own food, and I don't want the blue hairs bothering me. And I thought, well, gee, I can do that. That's easy. So that's what we're going to talk about today. It, it'll be fun. We'll talk about something I call HPOS, or HOA Pattern Obsession Syndrome. And that is the key to being able to do this. It's more about this than the particular plants you grow. Though we'll talk about a lot of different plants. We'll talk about techniques and tactics to be able to do this. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is the Wealth Steading Podcast, which provides timely information on investing in market trends. John Pugliano is an expert council member and a great personal friend of mine. You can check out his podcast to learn his 10 wealth building principles. And remember, if you come hang out with us at the TSP Spring Workshop, John Pugliano will be doing a presentation on what the effects economically will be of the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Like him or not, he's our president, 
And like it or not, he's getting shit done. And it's going to affect us. So this is not pro or anti-Trump from John. This is going to be the what is going to happen. Why should you give a damn? And on that note, I, I want to kind of cover with you guys, because there is some seats left. We did not sell out yesterday, which is fine. That means that anybody that wants to come to this one legitimately can come. There's not many. I think we're in the single digits since I did the post this morning. Uh, and now like eight or something like that remain, but there are some uh, seats left you can claim. I just want to give you the rundown of the workshops today. And those of you that are MSB members and you can't come, it's not the same, but all of this stuff will be videoed and uh, available in the MSB for you as a benefit. Um, knife making. After this class, you will know how to complete a kit knife, even if you don't do the hands-on extra class. Yep, all of a sudden, knifekits.com will be more interesting of a website for you. And Patrick Rohrman will teach those that upgrade his master craft. Smart Engine Maintenance, Chris Prater will be teaching this, and he is always awesome. and can show you how to do things for a dollar that others pay a hundred to accomplish. Homestead Automation, Charlie Fairchild will show you how to easily automate your homestead and save hours and dollars both. Alcohol infusions and fermented food, some guy named Spearco will show you how to make a $50 bottle of liquor for five bucks and how to make healthy fermented foods to heal your body if you overindulge in them. Sous vide cooking, Jake Robinson and that Spearco guy will show you how to make steaks and more that will blow away your family and friends. Building an AR-15, how would you like to save a couple hundred bucks on your next AR? It isn't that hard, and the basics of building your own will be covered in only one hour flat. Roasting coffee, Nicole, awesome sauce, that's what I call her, will show you not only just how to roast your own coffee, but how she doesn't just save money, she makes money doing it. We call that function stacking. As I said, John Pugliano will be covering the Trump economic impact, so we won't rehash that one here. High-density food production, this is being done by my, my buddy David Siegler. In some years, he and his wife produce up to 70% of their own calories for the full year off their own land. Oh, by the way, it's on a suburban Fort Worth property, and he will tell you how to offset the cost by selling things to yuppies. Things you would never have thought of. Yeah, really, and you can't find out unless you come. Homesteading on a budget and cover crop seed mixes. Nick Ferguson is a master of doing more with less uh, so as to make homesteading profitable. He will also teach you how to make your own seed mixes and save both the earth and your wallet in the process. Solar power. Karen Houston has 30 years of experience as a master electrician. She will teach you how to make solar power work for you, both on and off grid woodworking. In fact, anarchist woodworking. What is that? It is building amazing stuff with nothing but hand tools. Instructor Brad Fulbright will show you what it's all about. And special unadvertised bonuses. If I told you what that was, it would ruin it, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed it would. So we're not going to tell you that. But, man, uh, you got a chance to come. And if you've been on the fence, this is the year to make it happen. Come out and meet some really great people. It's 500 bucks, but it's only a $100 deposit. You got all the way to the last week of March to save up the other 400 And I'll tell you this. If there's somebody out there that's like, I just can't, I just can't do 500 in that period of time. Get with me before you, you sign up. Don't, don't deposit and then say I need terms or whatever. But tell me what you can do and we'll work out. It's not, I'm not going to cut the price for you. I don't think it's fair to those students, but if you really can't just do it by that date, but that would make the difference for you, you know, we can do something. We can work some kind of payment schedule out if, because I want people that really want to come but just can't quite pull it off to be able to come. 
anyway, so I am willing to be flexible with that. Now let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year 1942. The United States is embroiled in World War II, and that will dominate the discussion today. We have 30 seconds over Tokyo, the Doolittle Raid. Uh, I'm not going to read either one of the subjects. There's a lot of bullet points on the war, and I'm going to read those today. Uh, but this is where the U.S. was able to actually bomb Japan in like the first real year of the war when Japan didn't think we could reach them and bomb them. Didn't accomplish a lot, but it was a huge morale shift, and it's really cool. Uh, the Battle for Los Angeles and Our Humanity. This talks about the rounding up of the Japanese during the war and some craziness that went on on the West Coast, some justified, some unjustified. Notable births this year in politics, all living, Joe Biden, Joe Lieberman, and Michael Bloomberg. Stephen Hawking is born this year, also living uh, physicist and author of The Brief History of Time. Charlie Rose living, interviewer and newsreader. And entertainment, Michael Crichton, author of Andromeda Strange, Jurassic Park, and State of Fear. I didn't know he had passed on. Harrison Ford, living Han Solo in Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Of course, Han Solo was killed in the first new Star Trek or Star Wars movie. Paul McCartney, living from the Beatles, of course. Barbara Streisand, living singer, actor, funny girl, Hello Dolly, and Yentl. And God, I wish she'd go away. Uh, Madeline Kahn, comedian, actress, What's Up Doc, Young Frankenstein, and Blazing Saddles. Uh, by the way, my comments about Barbara Streisand are mine, not Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us. This year in film, we have Bambi released, animated, uh, Holiday Inn, Bing Crosby seems I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. The year of music, we have White Christmas, we have Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree by the Andrews Sisters, and De Fuhrer's Face, a Spike Jones comedy tune. In other news, the Aqualung is invented, DDT is first used as a pesticide, Daylight Savings Time is now in effect for the first time. World War II in review. This is where it's going to get long and interesting. January, Captain Wendell Fedzig, Army Corps of Engineers Reserve, remains in Manila as his family evacuates to the USA. Japan invades the Dutch East Indies, Kuala Lumpur, Burma, Singapore, Java, and Ragoon. American forces arrive in Europe. February, FDR establishes exclusionary zones for Japanese Americans on the West Coast and Germans and Italians on the East Coast. A lot of people forget about that little thing. A Japanese submarine shells a Santa Barbara oil field. The attack becomes a, com a comedic subject of a movie, 1941. The Voice of America begins broadcasting. March, a ma Major Wendell Fittrig deploys, uh, destroys supplies to deny them to the enemy as U.S. troops retreat toward Bataan. He drives his brand new Dodge into Manila Bay. U.S. General Douglas MacArthur evacuates the Philippines and says, I shall return. The Belzec extermination camps open. Nearly 500,000 people, mostly Jews, will be murdered there this year. April, the Sorbor and Trilobinka II extermination camps are open. Over 1 million people, mostly Jews, will be murdered there in the next year and a half. Bataan falls and the Bataan death march begins. The Doolittle Raid over Tokyo is a tactically insignificant raid that will cause the Japanese to adjust their war plan. That's a significant Japanese error. May, Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Fedzig avoids capture and heads for the jungle. Actress Lucille Ball claims the Japanese spies are sending secret radio messages she can hear through her dental work. Mythbusters says no way. The Woman's Auxiliary Army Corps, or WAX, is created. June, the Battle of Midway, the Japanese get their heads handed to them. Japan will invade the Aleutian Islands. They'll step onto American soil and sit there and freeze 
basically, not really affect anything. And Frank, Frank makes the first entry into her diary. She's 13. Heisenberg's nuclear pile explodes. A new design for the Nazi nuclear bomb will be required, and they have one. July, Anne Frank goes into hiding in an attic above her father's office. Waves, women accepted for voluntary emergency service, is established. August, Guadalcanal, U.S. Navy and Marines make their amphibious assault on the island. Six German saboteurs are executed in Washington, D.C. for their role in Operation Pistorius. September, Brigadier General Wendell Furzig organizes a Filipino guerrilla fighter. The Filipinos call him Tate, meaning father. He is no general. I'm not even sure he's a colonel, but he's going to do a ter terrific job in the Philippines. The right man, the right place at the right time. The Japanese bomb Oregon. A small float plane drops a few incendiary bombs, but it's the first for the continental U.S., October, German U-boats are running wild. November, Battle of Stalingrad. Soviet forces counterattack and surround the German army. December, gasoline rationing begins in the U.S. and the Manhattan Project. Enrico Fermi initiates a nuclear chain reaction at the University of Chicago. Several men are ready to smother the nuclear pile before it takes out one-third of the university and surrounding neighborhood. Those were the days. Uh, and it's on. And, and the world is plummeting into the most bloody war that we've ever fought up to this point. And hopefully it will be the most bloody war ever fought. Sometimes I fear that it won't be. My comments, though, I will save on it for the closing segment of today's show. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. With that, let's get into... Uh Understanding today's uh, topic, again, this came from the TSPN Zello channel. Um, I, I want to kind of start out with where all of the problems come from when people try to grow front yards, gardens, and things like that in HOAs, or the one spouse decides they want to start growing edibles and does it, and the other spouse is not all about it. Or maybe there's not an HOA, but there's just neighbors that don't like it, and maybe there is some level of... Code enforcement that can be brought down on you because of percentages of grass in your lawn, which actually is a real thing, and something's wrong with Americans in their head, and there's a sickness. And the sickness I call HPOS, right? HPOS, which is Homeowner Association Pattern Obsession Syndrome. And that's really where it comes from. And even when it's not from a homeowner's association, it's still HPOS. And, and what that is, is that people that are suburbanites, have been conditioned to follow a specific pattern of the way that things are supposed to look. And anything that deviates from that pattern, even if they don't get upset about it, they notice it. And when they notice it, they investigate it. And when they investigate it, they become potentially a problem. So if we understand that, 
then we can look at the situation that we're in and say, what is the, let's look at what everybody has done in this area. You know, how they put their tree or their bush or their shrubs in, how they maintain their lawn, how they put in flower beds and things like that. And, and, and don't worry about what they're growing. Just, just throw that away. You have to look at how they're doing it. So what types of mulches are they using? Because some of the mulches they use you may not want to use, but you can use mulches that have a similar appearance. If everybody's using dark mulches, then you would want to use a dark wood mulch for using a wood mulch. If everybody's using light mulches, then maybe a lighter colored wood mulch, something that kind of fits. If things are being done with hard angles, meaning that islands are generally in a neighborhood in kind of a square shape, then we want to emulate square shape hard angles in anything that we do. If they're being done with soft angles and curves, we want to emulate that. We want to follow the pattern. So it would be like a first step would just be drive around the neighborhood and look for all the landscaping and, and you know kind of make little sketches of the different patterns. And then we can go back and we can apply those patterns to our own property. You know, there's a lot of places where everybody's got a tree, and under that tree is a circle, and that circle is is landscaped in with maybe retaining wall bricks. And then in there, there's fill, and when we've done that, then we're planting, you know, posies or something all around them. That's actually not the best way to do a tree. A tree's better off without a well around it like that. That's a that's an HOA POS obsession. It's something that many many people do, but we can make it work anyway. We can we can fill any fill that we're going to do with it first and plant the tree so that it's higher up so that we're not planting the tree too deep and that helps a lot and lets the root flare out. That's just one example. I'm not saying to do that. I'm saying look at what people are doing. Many places you have a driveway. The driveway comes down to the road. It's very common that kind of a half moon shape connects the driveway and the sidewalk or the driveway and the road, creating this little kind of triangle on one side and soft curve on the back. If that's what people are doing, you can mirror it on both sides of a driveway and nobody will get upset about it because it looks like it's supposed to look. Now, if you put a tomato plant in there in a stake and make this big high tomato plant when everybody's growing low stuff, they'll probably get upset. What are you doing? You're in a garden in the front yard. We're going to lose our our property values. And gee, you know, our children might be able to afford a house here because it won't go up in taxes and value so much our kids can't buy it. But we don't want that. We're sick in the head and we have HPOS. So whatever we put in that little thing down in the foreground, we need to look at what people are growing and pick plants that happen to be edible that fit into that pattern. But it all starts with the pattern. And it, it, when you when you drive or when you look at any situation where some group of people or some family or some old lady or whatever are being attacked by the blue hairs and the uptight yuppie assholes or the code enforcement people, whenever you look at their yard, you always say to yourself, wow, that's awesome. Why are these stupid people doing it? But the other thing you always say is it looks different. It, it pops out. And it doesn't pop out in a way that creates uh, suburban envy. Right? It's like beautiful roses and it's landscaped and all where it'd be like, I want my yard to look like theirs. It's, oh, their yard looks messy. Their yard looks out of place. Their yard doesn't look right. Their yard is against the rules. So, step two, know the rules. Down to things like the percentage of grass that must be in your, your yard. That's a real thing. Sometimes there's, there's restrictions on the number of, of trees that you can grow in a yard. Height restrictions. What's good? Whatever those rules are, know them all. Know them all so that you're in a defensible position if you're attacked. 
But if you follow them and you follow the, the pattern duplication, you probably won't be. You probably won't be. The next is, since you're going to be growing food, you need to make sure that you're maintaining your lawn. You do. Because uh, you don't want problems from the blue hairs. Right? You don't want problems from the assholes. You don't want problems from the code enforcement. So if your grass is all brown and shit like that, then you're going to have problems with these people. But you also don't want true green chemlon coming in there, spraying it, and, and putting all these chemicals that are going to damage the 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 food you're trying to grow, the other plants you're trying to grow, and, and put chemical ick into things that you're going to eat and put in your mouth. So we need to switch to an organic lawn management program. Very important that we maintain the grass that's there so that we don't incur the blue hair wrath. Okay? But the best way I can tell you to do that without making this a whole show on that is there's two resources I'll give you in the links of today's show notes. One is the, the Howard Garrett methodology from the Dirt Doctor on maintaining your lawn organically, and the other is an article by our own Paul Wheaton. Between the two of those, you can kind of cobble together what works best for you, a way to maintain your grass without putting toxic chemicals into your food. Okay. Um, next, measure your working area and design in islands and edges within the rules. This actually starts to get easy now. All of a sudden, those restrictions are not so hated anymore. Because when you have restrictions, the design starts to spell itself out. There's only so many things you can do within those restrictions. And in the words of Jeff Lawton, probably the greatest living permaculturist on the planet, the greater the restrictions, the more elegant the design if the designer is up to the task. You now become the designer. So sketch your yard to scale roughly, you know. Mark out how much, you know, you need 60% grass, 70% grass, 50% grass, whatever it is. That means you have 50% to work with. Design edges on the patterns that already exist in the property. Once you've done that, install irrigation to all the locations and drip as best if you can do it. And in most of these properties, it's not a lot of land in a front yard where the, you know, the main uh, emulation has to take place. You can generally get away with more in your backyard than your front yard. So go ahead and install irrigation. Uh, you can do this, you know, hand digging to your different islands with drip emitters and put it on a timer. This means everything's going to take care of itself and everything's always going to look good so you don't incur the wrath of the blue hairs and the yuppie assholes. Okay? And along the way, it's like, why do you live here anyway? But I know some of you really don't have a choice at this point in your life. So, um, you put that drip irrigation and that's your next step. And if you can't do drip, then you do like hedge sprinklers or something like that. Something to make sure that it never looks bad. There's not big dead stuff and things like that. Next, do use things like landscape fabric and mulches, though natural mulches. This keeps down weeds. It makes your maintenance easier. It keeps it easier to keep everything looking good. What HOAs want is the plant is not the problem. A whole bunch of plants growing in that kind of this menagerie, that's the problem for them. So if you have a whole bunch of different colored Swiss chard growing in there, all different sizes and shapes and intertwined with you know stuff coming up between them, it's actually great. Uh, your your HOA idiots are like, oh, it's weeds. But if they're like individually and spaced out nice and they have the same type of mimic of pattern, well, they might have posies, you might have rainbow shard, but nobody thinks it's a problem because it matches the pattern. It's always going to go back to that. 
and your, your, your landscape fabrics and things like that help keep things in that nice manicured way. This is not the way I prefer to do things, but in this environment, this is how you do things and get away with it. Uh, next thing, look at what your namers do and mimic the pattern. I know I've already been saying that, but I'm going to say right here in the, in, when we're getting down to brass tacks, we've put in the islands, we've put in the, the landscaping, we've put in the bl weed blockers, we've put in the mulches, we've put in the irrigation. Before we start planting and just randomly throwing shit in there, look at the way, look at the spacings they use. Even if they're not ideal for, ideal for vegetables or bushes or shrubs or what have you. Kind of mimic those. And the next step is don't only plant things that are edible. Plant things that your neighbors are used to as ornamentals. If a lot of your neighbors plant marigolds, marigolds are a fine plant. Throw some marigolds in there. If most of the people in your neighborhood, like if it's shady back by the house a little bit, have azaleas back there, put in azaleas and inter interplant them with, with something like blueberries. So that the azaleas there, so they see the azalea, they see the azalea flowers. And by the way, azaleas... Blueberries grow in the same environment. They like acidic soil. The, the, the organic azalea fertilizer is perfect for your blueberries. They both like a little bit of shade. So you start finding companion plants. So when you find, okay, my neighbors grow azaleas, I know blueberries will fit with that. And that way, not only do you have the pattern, you have plants that they recognize. Now, yeah, you can't get the density, but you do get diversity out of it. So it's an even trade-off. Um, next, if you're going to use bushes, shrubs, trees, vines, use dwarf varieties or prune them, prune them into dwarfing sizes. Because there's a, a couple reasons for that. One, if you let a tree get really big in an HOA, and it's a fruit tree or something, it starts dropping stuff on the neighbor's yards, and now they're going to bitch. Number two, since you're working with a small area, if you let a tree get too big, you shade things out. Once you've shaded things out, you can't grow as much, and then it becomes difficult for you to maintain that 50% grass requirement or whatever stupid nonsense somebody's come up with to tell you that you have to do with your own property. So we keep things pruned down or dwarfing rootstocks and things like that, And that way we can put them and tuck them into recessed areas. We can put trees and shrubs, you know, back by the, the, the fence or, you know, if you have one side, usually most houses, one side of your house, the fence has an opening to get into the backyard and the other side there's not. You can put some, you know, trees or shrubs or things back in those edges and areas like that. And because they're dwarf, they won't encroach on the neighbor. They'll look nice. You know, fruit trees in general look nice. They have pretty leaves. They turn colors. They fall off like all deciduous trees. They put on flowers in the springtime. They attract bees and butterflies. It's, it's not the fruit tree. It's the big fruit tree that drops peaches in the neighbor's yard. It's the, it's the, it's, it, or, or creates drippings onto their car, uh, or it's just out of place. It's too large for the setting that causes the problems with the blue hairs and the yuppie assholes. Um, next, definitely grow annuals throughout the season with succession planning. So, chard, honestly, in southern climates is really almost like a perennial, but things like lettuces or, Uh, other greens and stuff like that make great, uh, great things to plant. Uh, ornamental hot peppers will be something we'll talk about here in a minute. Things like that. But when you're planting them, as they start to reach kind of the end of their useful life, be pulling them out and putting something else back in. From a standpoint of logistics for yourself, you make the most of a small system. 
Okay, you're making the most of a small system. You're getting a lot of value out of a space because it's never idle, it's never empty. But since it's never idle and it's never empty, it looks more like what? The pattern the neighbors have who, who put their, their pansies in in the spring and then their marigolds in the summer and things like that. So we're able to kind of keep things moving and changing but controlled within the pattern So the neighbors don't, like, if they start to get annoyed by something, by the time they start to get annoyed and think about bringing it up at the next meeting and going, I think Mary's got a garden, I'm not sure, uh, it's, you, you, you've changed it. So now it's, oh, that's gone. Well, I wonder if she's gone now. What is wrong with people? This is a mental illness, isn't it? It's sad that we have to do this. The good news is that we can. Um, So definitely grow throughout the season. And then if you have neighbors that aren't really a pain in the ass, give them some easy-to-grow pretty plants to put in their own. Like if they say, oh, that's pretty, you have like the red chard growing, you don't have to worry about the fact that it's edible, right? You say, oh, would you I have a – because you could start like a 100 plants in one tray, right? I'll give you a couple. You can plant them. So now if you could start spreading them throughout the neighborhood, I don't give a shit if anybody eats them. Because now it's, now it's part of the pattern. Well, that can't be because it grows there and it grows there. Oh, like four people have it. Now it's okay. So that's one kind of gorilla surveys, you know, surveysive tactic that you can use there. Um, also, it really think about building retaining walls for deeper fills of soil because most of the time the soil in your area sucks. Uh, because when they build houses, they basically bulldoze everything. And then they, they dump just like shitty topsoil down a few inches of it if you're lucky. And then they throw down, you know, sod. So it, it generally is, is quite a bit of work to build soil. And a lot of the ways that you would typically build soil uh, with, you know, succession planning and, and chop and drop and stuff like that are kind of a no-go there. So, you know, you can buy a few bags or a couple truckloads of some really good soil mix and backfill into these, these you know, retaining walls. And build those in the pattern of the neighborhood you're in. You know, up against the house, coming out in front of a big window, have a nice, you know, retaining wall, a couple, couple rocks high. Do it professionally. If you're not capable, hire somebody who does professional stuff. You know, make it look like everything else in the neighborhood. Make it match your house. Make it match the neighborhood theme. Then you drop your blueberries and stuff on the back wall. You run something like sweet potato as ground cover. We pop some uh, marigolds in there, or you know whatever the, the the neighborhood's doing, and we start to have a real. And you know we don't let the potatoes grow over the edge of the the retaining wall, even though that would be a great thing to do because it, it doesn't look right unless other neighbors have like ground covers that are doing that, and then it's acceptable. So it's always going back to looking at what the pattern is, so that the per the blue hair driving by today goes. Eh. Find something else to worry about. Find something else to bitch about. Something else to turn her nose up about. I, I just don't understand this mental illness, but I do understand how it functions, and that's what we're doing. We're see what this really is 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 basically a social design consideration. So let me give you a legitimate social design consideration. I wanted some big mulberry trees in my food forest. My food forest is a three-quarter acre strip between my 
uh, outbuilding and my neighbor's yard. My neighbors are two older people. They're, they're genuinely great people. They really can't do anything about anything I do here anyway. We're unincorporated. But they are neighbors, and I do have concern for their well-being and their happiness. And I know if I put two big mulberry trees over there, or three, actually three big mulberry trees, and these are not dwarf mulberries like we'll talk about in a bit, that those mulberries are going to get very tall. I mean, they're only two years old, and those trees are 12, 13 feet tall right now. And that when they're, you know, five, ten years old, and they're as, as big around as my leg or bigger, and I don't want to lose them, and they've canopied out, and they're really dropping fruit, even though where I planted them, they won't be dropping fruit on the neighbor's yards, that birds will come, and birds will eat them, and then birds will shit purple shit all over the neighbor's freaking truck. And he would have a legitimate gripe because of your tree, my beautiful... And he, this is a guy that goes out like, he's retired now, he has lots of money, he goes out like every three years and buys a brand new vehicle for cash whether he needs it or not. I don't think that's a good financial practice, but it's his money, he can do what he wants to. And frankly, the way he lives, he may not be around much longer anyway because he looks like he's going to fall over and die any minute, which might bring me new neighbors that aren't, that aren't as cool as they are. So I need to have that buckled in additionally to just being a decent person and not want to be an asshole to my neighbors. So what did I do? I planted white mulberries. So if the birds do eat some and do crap over there, they won't stain purple. So that's a social design consideration. This is just taking a social design consideration to another level. When we design any sort of food system or any sort of system, we need to look at all of the interactions all of the inputs, all of the outputs, all of the energy flows. And then an HOA is no different. What are the interactions? What are the social edge interactions in an HOA? And again, it goes back to making the pattern fit. It's, it, it's really, it's really the same thing all over again. We definitely want to utilize edges as this is expected by people with HPOS, right? HOS, uh, HOA, uh, pattern obsession syndrome, right? There are edge uses. So they, you go to HOAs, and a lot of times you see something like wisteria up on a wall. Well, there's no reason that can't be some sort of an edible. Even if it's just sweet potato vine, because we need the greens off of that. And we'll have to prune it frequently so it doesn't get out of hand, right? But every time we prune it, we're harvesting it. So now we're harvesting food, but we don't look like we're harvesting food. We look like we're being good little HOA drones and maintaining the pattern that they want to see. And utilize large containers. This is something really becomes a problem. You can get a, a moving dolly and, and move it to the backyard, right? But it's also another thing that's very common within neighborhoods, big stone planters and things like that. And, and it's also something that the people that are there with this problem in their mind are accustomed to seeing. When they go to shopping centers, they see pretty plants in containers, so if you go back, and I'll see if I can find the video. There's some videos of container plantings that I had along with my garden in Arlington. And I have things like nasturtium and marigold and like tons of stuff in one big pot with a dwarf peach in it. And the peaches yielded peaches that very year that that video was shot. And that was all just in one big pot. Well, when you look at it, I had a purple orach in it. You look, it, looks, it, looks like a, it looks like a flower pot. It doesn't look like, it's all food. 
even the marigolds technically, but the kind of the Tagastes marigolds that most people plant for ornamentals, that's not food. Uh, calendula uh, pot marigold is food. So I have the Tagastes marigolds there. Like the only thing that's not food, and the Tagastes marigold still has a, um, a a medicinal value. The the blossoms crushed up are very good topical on stings and and, and things like that. So that's kind of the approach to take. Um, now let's get into some of the different plants, even though I've named some as we've gone through this here. So I, I decided that I would come up with about 10 different plants with some ideas of what to do with them uh, that are annuals, or annual-like anyway, and 10 that are perennials. And what I want you to understand, though, is, as usual, I'm not saying go plant these 20 plants. I'm saying these are examples, and if you use what I've just given you, the concept of this pattern recognition and pattern implementation and say, okay, I need a, a plant that kind of fits this space this way in this arrangement, then you just eliminate the things that don't work, find the things that do work. Of those, pick the one that's best for your climate and your family's needs and put that there. All right, so these are just ideas to get the mind going. Uh, number one, herbs. Herbs you can generally put in just like any kind of uh, any kind of plant that that uh, anybody in HOA would put in for landscaping. They're very hardy. They go very well. Remember we talked about that little that little curved triangle out there by the mailbox. That's usually a very harsh area. The roads right there. It's getting a lot of heat off of the roads. Things like thyme, even though that's not really a thyme's a perennial, but that can kind of grow onto the curb a little bit. The smells good. Purple basil is a dynamite herb to grow. Because it looks like an ornamental, because it is, but it's also basil. It tastes just as good as green basil, but yet it looks so, it doesn't, when somebody sees it, they don't go, ooh, that's basil. They go, it's purple, even though it looks just like basil, right? So purple, basil, uh, oregano, uh, mints, all of these things can fit into the harsher parts of the, of the property, they all need to be pruned and trimmed regularly because they grow aggressively. That encourages you to harvest them. And then again, you're keeping the form that the neighbors want so the neighbors are happy. Next, I've mentioned this several times, but rainbow shard. The yellows, the goldens, the oranges, the reds, the, 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 the deep rubies, all of these different colors of shard. It's just gorgeous looking. It doesn't look anything like, you know, what people typically think of as an edible. The leaves do begin to get really big on the outside as they do. You harvest them and you cut and come again and you cut and come again and cut and come again. And you can do this all season long with chard. And those of you in southern climates like me, the chard will usually make it through your, your freezes and you get a second season out of it before it starts to go to seed as a biannual. So you get two seasons. I've had three seasons out of chard before without it going to seed because I kept cutting it and, and it, it, it didn't just, it just didn't go to seed because it was so well taken care of. It didn't feel the need or the stress required to make it want to reproduce. So rainbow chard is like a go-to and it's dynamite. I mean, it, it's good as baby leaves in a salad. You let it get a little bigger, chop it up. Here's a chard recipe, right? Even if you're not doing it for this reason, you just have it or you, you, you buy it from the store or whatever. Chop your chard up into reasonable size pieces. Fry up a few pieces of bacon. Take the bacon out and, and cut it up into smaller pieces. Leave the grease behind. Chop up an apple into small pieces. Throw the apple in there and give the pan a toss so the apple just gets coated with the bacon grease. Right? Uh, just let's, just maybe give it a, 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 maybe a minute of sauteing. You don't want it to be mush. 
throw your shard in and start giving that a toss, and that'll that'll wilt down really, really quick. If you want, if you have big ribs of shard, cut those into pieces like celery, throw that in first and give that a, a minute head start to soften it a little bit, then throw your leaves in, wilt them down, immediately get it out of the pan before you overcook it, turn it into slime, hit it with some salt and pepper, you can thank me later. And you can grow that in an HOA, and no one will see anything wrong with it. You'll eat it three or four times a week during the summer if you're in a good climate and take care of your soil. Another thing that's a lot like that is beets. People think of beets as like, you know, uh, very much a uh, kind of a, a very r rural thing, you know, or what have you. Beet greens are another, you can cook the beet greens the way I just said, or mix the shard and the beets together. Shard is actually in the beet family. But like bull's blood and, and, and things like that, these different varieties of deep red colored leaf beets, uh, they look really great. You can cut and come again all season. And then in the fall, when it's time to put something else in and you harvest, you can harvest out your beetroot and start something else. You can do the same thing with turnips. I didn't put them on the list, but you can do the same thing with turnips. There's certain turnips that have a really attractive foliage to them. You just have to control. You have to keep them at smaller levels with cut and come again so they don't get too out of hand. Sweet potato. This is something that, like, it's a duh thing. Okay, you go through, you know, par apartment complexes and stuff. They have sweet potato vine as ground cover, ornamental sweet potato vine everywhere. It looks the same. It looks the same. It might be a little bit of a different color, but it looks the same. People are used to seeing it. We just have to maintain it and not let it get too big. Those of you in southern climates, this is your go-to green in the summer. When the lettuce starts bolting, when you can't grow spinach anymore, whatever, you can grow, you can, you can cut it and cut it and cut it, and it just keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back. And if you want more of it, you can cut it, you take a few sprigs of it, and you stick them back in the ground, and then they grow, and then you cut that, and you stay, and you can just have a whole island full of this stuff by the end of the year. It gets cold. You stress it a little bit by not giving it some water toward the end of the season. That way it starts making starch. It makes the tubers. You go into the ground, and you pull it out, and you plant your winter whatever, and you've harvested sweet potato, and your neighbors have no idea. And if you're in southern climates, you can just leave a few tubers in the ground and they'll winter over and come back by themselves next year. And the whole process starts all over again. And you've just grown sweet potatoes right in front of the blue hairs and she doesn't know any better. I mean, it really can be that simple. Calendula, which I mentioned already, is really a good pot herb. Uh, it's a good medicinal. And it's a flower. Wherever you can plant marigold you can plant calendula pot marigold and when somebody says well what is that oh it's a type of marigold you haven't lied you've just bent the truth a little bit you know it's a type of marigold that's good for your skin that that heals wounds that helps draw out infections that's good to put on bee and wastings that can be cooked as a pot herb but all you need to know is it's a type of marigold it's it, it's, it's what it really is is it's also called marigold Because Tagastes and Calendula are totally different, totally different from each other. They just both have the common name Marigold. So you're you're really stretching the truth a little bit there. But they don't need to know. They don't know anything. If they knew anything, they wouldn't be asking stupid questions, right? Um, another great edible flower and a great edible green, and it, it is an absolute ornamental is nasturtium. Nasturtium is fantastic. It's peppery. It's, it's, it brings salads alive. It grows like crazy. It grows, it trails up on things. And if it gets too big, you cut it back. And I mean, there are restaurants that pay big money for a small clamshell of nasturtiums to put two or three on a garden salad. You can grow more than you know what to do with in one little, one little edge section of your HOA. Another one, ornamental hot peppers. 
You want to grow like Tabasco or whatever, go grow HOA. If it's going to be a problem, grow the ornamental ones. There's all different varieties. You go down to the, the plant nurseries, and, and you see them. They don't even put them with the vegetables. They're peppers, dude. That's what they are, and don't think they're not hot. I, I'll tell you a funny story. I was at a place called Mike's Garden Center, and they had these ornamental peppers, and they were already covered with peppers. That's the thing. They're so prolific. Usually even when they're little, they're covered with peppers. And they were like orange and yellow and red, right? And just little tiny peppers. And I thought, I wonder how hot they are. Yeah, I did it. I picked one off and I took a tiny bite of it. Oh, my. I'm not going to say it was habanero strength, but that one plant could have given you all the spice that you needed for the year and it came with the peppers on it. You could have a whole bunch of that dry them out, make hot pepper powders and rubs and stuff like to give them to your neighbors. They won't even know where they came from. You know? You could tell, oh, my cousin, he lives out in the sticks, and he's got a garden, grows Tabasco's, and he sent me a whole bunch of different hot peppers. I made this. And like, oh, wow, yeah, I got a redneck cousin, too. Dumbass, it was grown in the yard right in front of you, you dumbass. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm letting my, my vehement hatred of people like this come through today, but I, I really hate that I have to give this type of advice. Okay, next up, various lettuces. People think, you know, lettuce is obvious. No, it's not. Have you seen all the different kinds of lettuce? Get a hold of a couple seed catalogs and start looking at the different, like, you know, the deer tongue and speckled and spotted and different colors of, uh, colors of lettuce. And you take one of those little island patches in the time of the season where it makes sense to grow lettuce. You start your lettuce plants indoors under your lights, and then you bring them out when they're big enough, and you put them in there, and you vary them. Instead of being a row of lettuce, it's a clump of five different, six different kinds of lettuce. And when they start to get bigger, you come out and cut them, and they come again. And you cut them, and they come again, and they cut them, and they come again. And what are you doing? You're gardening, and you're harvesting, and what they think you're doing is maintaining your yard. See? That's how you do this. You follow the pattern to your own end. Another great thing you can use on, on edges and things like that, on fences, that looks beautiful, is scarlet runner beans. If you, I can't grow them. It's too hot and it's too shitty here. But if you can grow scarlet runner bean, they're about the greatest bean in the world. And they get these beautiful scarlet flowers on them. They almost look like honeysuckle. They look like a, like a scarlet honeysuckle. They're fantastic. Why wouldn't you grow that? Grow it on your fence or grow it on a trellis or whatever. And people think it's, it's flowers. And you go out there and harvest beans. And they go, oh, she's really on her yard. He's really on his yard. They, they must be pruning that pretty flower bush again. I wonder where they get those. Instead of, oh, look at the garden. It's horrible. It's going to hurt our property values. That's how you do this. Kale. And you know what's great about kale? First of all, it's a superfood. It tastes great. And there's all kinds of things you can do with it, especially if you harvest it young before it gets tough. It grows in the winter when you can't grow other things. But... There's all different types of ornamental kales now, and when you go through those shopping centers in the, the cooler times of the year, there's all different kales everywhere. So the patterns in people's heads, they don't know that's, that, that's, what, that's the kale that is actually used to make those stupid expensive chips that they buy for $8 for a little tiny bag. They don't know it's growing next door to them, and they're too stupid to do it for themselves. They know that plant looks like the plant that they saw at the at the place that they were spending way too much money on a pair of boots they were once a year. So it must be okay. So kale. Next one, perennials. Two dwarf trees I'll give you that I think are great. Dwarf pomegranate and dwarf peach. There's a lot of other dwarfs like apples and stuff like that, but peach has kind of that tropical look to it, those long leaves. And it, it, it can bear well when maintained as a dwarf. 
And this is something I wouldn't put out right by the road. This might be a center tree or more of a back tree, like, again, back by the fence, tucked in a little area. And because it's a dwarf and you can maintain it at about, like, shoulder height, then you can, you can get a lot of peaches off of it every year. And they're self-fertile, so you don't need two. You can still throw, if you want some cross-pollination, put one in the backyard, maybe even a bigger variety. But it's a, it's a good tree to work with. And then we can put our little island around it or our little kidney design around it or whatever fits the neighborhood around it. And we can prune it and maintain it. And we're doing our job and being a good citizen of our HOA. Right? Okay. And dwarf pomegranate, very, very productive. Beautiful red flowers. Almost some have white, but most of them have a red flower. Easily maintained as a shrub. Fits nice like in front of a window that you want to block the sun from or something like that if you don't want too much sun coming in the house and have some climate control. Very, very productive. It's also a superfood. It doesn't look out of place. It's got nice fern-like leaves. They turn like a fiery red color. Most varieties do in the fall. Um, the pomegranates themselves look kind of ornamental, like like a Christmas ornament or something like that. Birds don't eat them and carry them away and shit on your neighbor's car with them. And as soon as they're ripe, you can harvest them and put them to use. It's a great plant, and it, it handles a lot more cold than most people think. I grow them here. They're alive. Once established, especially a little protection the first year, they are really, really hardy. Zone seven and, 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 and up from there. And I know, I think some people have managed to, to pull it off in zone six, though. I think you're pushing it for most places with a zone six. Um, next one, uh, blueberries. I already mentioned this, but you put blueberries with azaleas. They use the same fertilizer. They like the same soil. They grow about the same height. They flower about the same time. You go out there, people think you're dicking around with your azaleas when you're picking blueberries. They handle containers well. And if you're not going to do a container, remember talking about retaining walls, it's basically a big container. So you can put a specific soil mix in there that's ideal for azaleas and blueberries and grow those together. Blueberries, to me, high in antioxidants, high in the different colors, and they're another superfood. They make blueberries that are uh, like a, a pink blueberry now. I can't remember what they're called. They're not a GMO. You don't have to be afraid of blue and pink blueberries in there. They also go to like a fiery red color with fall color. There's a lot of landscaping shrubs that are deciduous. They go to a red color so it doesn't look out of place. You see how this all works. You know, they're low growing so birds don't come down and eat bunches of them. That means you don't lose yield, but it also means they don't shit on your neighbor's Mercedes. Piss them off. Right? They, 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 they can be, you know, you can set them up so you have like, if you had five bushes that like you have an early, a late early, a mid, an early late, and a late so you have a long harvest of a little bit every day for many, many weeks. And again, it looks like you're tending to your landscaping job, right? They might wonder why you don't have, you know, somebody come do it for you, but that's okay. That's in the rules, right? Um, next, Fajoa or pineapple guava is what they're also called. Fajoa, um, again, people hear pineapple guava. I have to be in the tropics. I grow them here. I, I haven't got any production off of them just yet, but remember, my land is harsh. They're alive. They survive these harsh freezes we've had this year. They, the first year they came in, we had really bad hard freezes, and boy, they barely made it. But now they're tough as nails. I expect production this year off of them. So those are an evergreen, um, kind of like a, a lob-shaped leaf, like a rounded leaf. They don't get real big. You can put them into places. They look like, you know, similar to uh, the sage, silver sage bushes 
They don't get as big. They're not the same, but they have kind of that pattern look to them, to the unknowing blue hair that likes to bitch about the guy down the road growing corn. So we're not going to grow corn in the front yard because that would look out of place. That would match the pattern. Uh, figs. Figs are kind of a tropical-looking tree. Um, with protection, they can grow in a zone 6. Uh, you have no problem overwintering them in places like zone 7 and zone 8. Uh, they produce prolifically. You can prune them to just about any size that you want. Um, they don't look out of place. I, I don't, I mean, they can handle the heat and they like heat. So down by the road is a good place for them. It might not be where you want to be. You want to prune them. You don't want them to get too big because birds will eat them and they, you don't want them dropping on the neighbor's yard. And you do want to harvest a fig you harvest right when you touch it, it just falls off. That's when you want to harvest. If you have to pull, it's not ready yet. If it's on the ground, you waited too long. It's when you just touch it, it falls into your hand. You, you develop a, an eye form and you know what they look like and you just touch it, it falls in your hand. So we want to maintain the size of the seed. We want to harvest it so they're not laying on the ground, attracting flies and stuff like that. All of that with fruit. Never have fruit laying around on the ground in these places because that's what another thing that's out of place. Any smells. So smells part of pattern. What's the pattern of smell and odor, right? So um, figs, chives. Really should go under uh, herbs, but such a great perennial. I threw it in here. You can go in your container. Anywhere you, 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 you don't need grass and you're not sure what to do, throw a clump of chives in there and just, you know, cut and use them and cut and use them. Use them in your potatoes. Use them in your cooking. You know, give them away. A uh, little bundle. Here's some chives for you to cook with tonight. Here's a recipe to go with. Where'd you get those? From my, from my, 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 my cousin Eddie that lives in the, in the trailer park up the road, you know. Uh, whatever. They grew right in, in front of your window, dumbass. Uh, next, daylilies. Daylilies are everywhere as an ornamental plant. Uh, they're absolutely inedible. The tubers are edible, as are the, uh, the flowers, especially before they open. They can be steamed like asparagus. And you can divide them and, and propagate more every year. You take your surplus and you use it as an edible tuber, and then you take some of your flowers as edibles. That fits right in. They're beautiful. Now, make sure... I'm not going to go into a daylily show here. Uh, not all lilies are edibles. Uh, not all things people call daylilies are daylilies. Make sure you're working with an edible variety, but definitely you can eat uh, common daylilies, and they are a great thing. They're something we used to forage for in Pennsylvania on roadsides just to kind of drive it home. Uh, roses. Pfft, roses? What are you going to eat with a rose, Jack? Well, you buy the, the types of roses, the varieties of roses with large hips, and then you have those as a medicinal or as an adjunct in mead and beer making. I made some, some mead this last year uh, to the gallon, three pounds of honey. Um, rose hips, I think it was a half, a quarter cup of rose hips and a half a cup of dried rose blossoms. Freaking fantastic. Absolutely freaking fantastic roses. Right, My grandmother used to make rose soup. I'm not going to tell you how to make it, but you can look it up. It is a real thing. It's very much an Eastern European, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, Georginian thing. Uh, but I used to have to go out and, and pick rose hips for her, and she would make rose soup and rose tea. So roses are an edible, but yet no one can say your rose is not a, an ornamental plant. Uh, Nanking or Hansen's Cherry. Uh, these are dwarf cherries. They're very, very prolific. They can be pruned to about any size. They get beautiful flowers. They have beautiful fall color. They'll look like a shrub, an ornamental shrub, except they'll produce cherries. Again, since they're not something that produces cherries way high up, birds don't eat them. They don't shit on the neighbor's Mercedes. We don't get in trouble. 
Uh, they're a fantastic plant. They grow here. That means they'll grow anywhere. I haven't had much success with Nanking cherry producing here. I think it's too hot for it. Um, Hansen's bush cherry, which you can also find under the name sand cherry, is actually a little plum. Is what it really is. A tiny plum that tastes like a cherry. They have produced very prolifically here for me, yet they'll handle very cold environments as well. So that means that one of those two will probably grow wherever you live in the United States, except maybe the very extreme parts of Alaska where, you know what, you're not going to have this problem there, and how are you? And last but not least, dwarf mulberry. I am growing the hell out of dwarf mulberry. I'm not letting my dwarf mulberry stay very dwarf. I mean, they're really big. They're, some of them have trunks in two years almost as big as my wrist, and they're you know eight feet high. But you can prune them in any shape and size you want. So you prune them down at a level that birds aren't going to take from them. They have big, pretty green leaves. They put on nice fall color. They fall off. They, they, they bud out early. They produce berries. You go out, you pick the berries. You have the berries for whatever you want to use them for, and the plant fits right in. You know, all of these plants can be grown, but we got to go back In the end, the key is to stay in the rules and stay in the pattern. And if we're not going to stay in the rules, what we want to do is stay in the spirit of the rules. So an edible landscaping may be specifically prohibited, but these just happen to be plants you could eat. But we want to stay in those rules. If the rules are 60% must be grass, 40% must be grass, 50%, whatever it is, you want to go out and you want to get a, 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 a wheel and wheel off your property and calculate it to the square inch and leave yourself 3% or 4% buffer. And then if somebody calls you on it, you defy them to prove that you're wrong. But in the end, get the hell out of the HOAs ASAP. Some of you guys say, there's nowhere around here without HOA. Bullshit. Bullshit. Did you look? But I understand some of you may have bought into an area where it sounded like a good idea. Uh, and now you're in that house, and it doesn't make sense for you and your family to move. So I, I'm just being a little playful there with it. But... You know, if you can, it's not the, the ideal situation. But I hope what I've kind of demonstrated for you today is we can work with that. And there's there's a hundred other plants that you could find that you could work in if you could match the patterns. And then, again, you can generally get away with a lot more in a backyard. A lot more in a backyard. That's where your tomatoes go and your peppers and things like that. We can even kind of keep that mimicking, though, so that even the nosy neighbor that sticks over their head over the fence once a while, it doesn't really look too out of sorts. It doesn't really look too out of sorts. And some of you guys, like, the reason you want to do it in the front yard is because the backyard just isn't suitable from solar aspect and shade from neighbors and things like that. And, dude, I want you to cut your elm tree down. It's not nice to ask anyway, but when you say it's for a garden and an HOA, that's another problem altogether. So this also, and I have less, you know, seething hatred for it, but the reluctant spouse says it's going to look messy. If you follow the patterns and it just so happens that food comes out of it, you can get the reluctant spouse on board. So just consider this stuff when you think, well, I can't because. Because really what that means is I can't because I haven't thought hard enough yet. See, that, that that's the thing I try to teach you guys, not just about this, but about everything in life. When you see, like, I've had this conversation with somebody recently on Facebook. It's like, I have barely have enough ability to take care of myself. I can't help others. And this was somebody bitching that what had happened was this guy came up with a, with a libertarian school. Uh, tuition was like five grand a year, and your kid got a much better education. But there were certain things they didn't do. And one was they didn't take children with special needs because they're more expensive to educate. And he's like, just leave those people behind. Well, you know what? This guy went out and did something positive, and that other thing is something somebody else can do. 
right? And the public schools got that anyway. They can have, they can keep that. When a, when, a, when a smart entrepreneur goes out, they bite off the piece they can handle and they address that. And then you know, somebody else takes this other complex piece of the market. So when I saw that and I heard that part of this video, the first thing I thought is, how could one address that situation and still be profitable for parents that want something better than a government model? Where this guy's first thought was what? Oh, great, you left people behind. And then when somebody said, well, the great thing about charity is you can help anybody you want, his response was, I can barely take care of myself. And my response was, I don't doubt it. Of course you can barely take care of yourself. Because the, 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 the thinking is so ass backwards. And that's why people sit in HOAs and go, I can't do anything. Because the, we, we've gotten apathetic and lazy in our thinking. When I see something I really want, and I go, I'd like to have that in my life, What most people think is, but I can't afford it. Maybe someday I'll be able to afford it. My thought is always, how could I afford it? And you know, out of 20 times, the answer is, all of the things I would have to do don't make sense for me, or are I have to give too much up? I don't really want it as much as I thought I did. That's all fine. You know, I, th th this doesn't work. So let's say I have 16 times, 18 times out of 20. But the, 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 the two or four times that you figure out how to do something, if you leverage it properly, all of a sudden of the 16 that are left or the 18 that are left, now you've gotten, you've learned more and you've advanced in life and now you can find one more that you can do. And then maybe even those other 18 just wash away into the past, but you've changed the, your thinking, you've changed your analysis, you've changed the way that you handle things. And when the next thing comes up that's a problem, you start immediately thinking about the solution rather than the problem itself. And, and that's what makes good design. Instead of worrying about what you can't do, you, what, can, what can I do? That's a great question. That's part of why I chose this topic. The, the, the person on Zello didn't say to me, uh, I can't do anything and I wish I could. She said, what could I do? How can I make this work? So you're already on the path. In fact, they even gave me uh, lace elderberry as an example plant that I'll throw in here at the end of another great plant. So she had already started to think about the problem. So hopefully this helped her, and hopefully this helped you guys. All right, with that, we do have the show wrapped up for the day for the main topic. I want to remind you, if you like this show, if you think you, uh, you you get some value out of it, and I hope you do if you listen to it often, that you get some value, or I you know, would wonder why you'd come back. Consider helping to support us by simply doing your shopping when you shop on Amazon through TSPAZ, which is T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAZ.com. Go there, click a link, go to Amazon, and buy your stuff on Amazon that you were going to buy anyway. It, it, it won't cost you any more money. You don't have to do anything special. You don't have to put in a special code or something like that. All you got to do is just go through TSPAS when you're going to go to Amazon. Buy your stuff. Get your stuff like you always do. You help us, and it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt at all. It's a painless way to help support the show. On that note, every day I do give an item for review. Today is a product by Black and Decker. Not usually my favorite source of things, but this is a damn good product. It's a 20-volt lithium-ion pole saw. It's basically a little chainsaw on a pole that extends up to 12 feet long. What do you think you do with that? You use it for pruning trees and lopping trees and topping trees and stuff like that. The way I ended up giving this thing a shot was, was a, a, a purchase of necessity. 
My father-in-law, over the last couple of years, descended deep into to Alzheimer's. We got him home care. We did everything we could to keep him out of a facility for as long as we could. But we got to a point where it just isn't possible anymore. He, he has to have full-time care. We found a great place called Silverado. And if you have this need, I recommend you look them up and check them out. They're awesome. But when we did that, we said, well... You know, with the money he has, we can keep him there for about a year, year and a half. If we sell his house, we can keep him in there for at least another year. And if we can keep him three years, they have to take whatever whatever his uh, Medicare provides. Once you're in a facility three years, uh, they have to keep you for that. So whatever we do, scrape and hook and whatever, keep him there three years. Um, and it, on a, just a, a somber note, it, it may not be an issue at that point as well. Um, but we, we, we need to sell his house. And this was kind of a hard thing for the family, especially these kids. Now, my son and my father-in-law had planted a pecan tree many, many years ago. It was a huge pecan tree in his front yard. Thankfully, he didn't live in an HOA. And I thought, what a great idea to take some big limbs off of it, and I can have some things made up for the family out of the wood from the tree. And so I figured the day we were getting all the stuff out of the house for the sale, because we had already sold it at this point, I'll go down there to help everybody, and I'll take my chainsaw, and I'll, I'll find a limb, and I'll cut it off. So we get there, and I, I find a couple limbs, and I'm like, I can take those and get quite a bit of material, um, and it won't ruin the structure of the tree and piss the buyer off or what have you. Uh, but when I looked at it, I went, it's kind of dangerous to get up there on my saw and cut. I'm like, I need a, I need a pole saw. So I, I went over to Lowe's. There's a Lowe's maybe five minutes from the house. And of all the stuff I found, this, this cordless one seemed like the best option for long term, not just for the immediate need, but I have skepticism when I look at a cordless chainsaw, right? I, I have ones that I know work well, and especially battery-powered, I wasn't sure. I thought, well, it's only for lopping small limbs and stuff. Like, this isn't for felling oak trees or whatever, so uh, I, I bought it, and I figured if it sucks, it'll work good enough to get it done, and I'll just return it and say it sucks. So I used it. It worked great. It's a powerhouse little tool. And uh, so now I use it around here to keep limbs lopped off my trees because my oaks, just my live oaks, are the only thing that grows here on its own. They grow back, and you keep pruning them up so you don't get – because the, the branches on these things just take an eye out. So I always try to keep them pruned up above head height, and this has been a great help for that. And some trees that I've had to take out, um, you know, they have weird tops and leaning certain ways, and by being able to lop off pieces of the top a little at a time and kind of whittle them down and make dropping them a lot safer and a lot easier. Now, let me say this. This is a product that not only is convenient, it, 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 it's really a safety issue. There's a lot of times using a, a pole saw or a lopper saw is a lot safer than trying to do close-up work. I worked for Esplenda for a summer when I was a teenager uh, because it paid and I could get the job. And uh, I saw two really nasty accidents with people that should have went and got a pole saw. No, I got it. Don't worry about it. I saw one guy, when the limb broke, it shattered and popped, and a, a piece popped out, hit him in the face. And not only did it smash his face, and he looked like Mike Tyson did him in, you know, with 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 a pair of knuckle, uh, like what do you call it, like a, with some brass knuckles, uh, the way it smashed his face, and also knocked him out of the tree onto the ground and 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 fractured his his uh, left arm. And it was one of those where you look at the break and you you don't want to look at it. Um, so and he's lucky it wasn't worse. So I, I really, if you don't use this one, if you're going to be doing a lot of work with taking tops off trees and stuff like that. 
get a, if you're doing a lot of work, get a gas one. This is for the homesteader on a small property, exactly what I am. Uh, if you're going to be doing it weekly, you know, get a good gas lopper saw. Uh, if you have a big job and it, this is not equipped for it, a lot of equipment rental places you can rent them. Just know your limitations with any of this stuff, but certainly there's a safety margin by using these. Now, when people are around you, you got to be really clear. This same gal on um, Zello that asked me to do the show that I did today, uh, another thing she said, I think it was the same one. I'm not sure now. Uh, it was a while ago. I've forgotten. Uh, but uh, the equipment failures, and she was using a pole saw, and her husband wasn't paying attention, and he came back because she had the saw running and hearing protection on. She didn't hear him approaching, and he got hit in the head with a limb. So you need to really also reinforce safety of people around you. And that's, I said to her, I said, you know, there is an equipment issue there, and maybe it's, if you're using things like that where you need to be able to hear what's going on, there is equipment that the, it only suppresses sound when it's loud, though I don't know what it helped in that situation because of while the saw was running, right? But you, you can't be too safe when it comes to dropping trees, using power tools, especially chainsaws. The injuries are horrific. You have been warned. But if you know what you're doing and you need a good lopper saw, this thing's like 111 bucks with the battery and a charger you can buy it as a bare tool. Either or. Link in the review in uh, at TSPAS today. Black & Decker 20-volt lithium-ion pole saw, the item of the day. For everything else at Amazon, just go through TSPAS first and help us out. Which brings us to the song of the day. This is one of those ones that since I came up with the idea, let's do the number one song of the year as we come up to present time, especially through the war years. You look at it and go, hmm, because it's White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Christmas was over a month ago. January 31st. 2017 Christmas, next Christmas is 11 months away. But you know what? I decided we're going to see this thing through, and I'm going to play a Christmas song today. But I also thought it would really fit the whole purpose for us to feel what the people of the time were feeling that made the song a hit, especially the 40s and the 50s. There's a lot of emotional connection. There weren't Justin Bieber's running around singing nonsense back then. Um, I also want to point out that of the top ten for this year, three of them were by Glenn Miller Band. We've already heard two number ones from. They, they were, again, these people were the rock stars of their day, and I think we kind of forget that when we look back this far into the past in 1942. What was going on in 1942? Well, in 1941, the United States government started the peacetime draft. People were already being pressed into service before the war started. At this point... By the time you get to Christmas of 1942, you've had two years of the draft. You've had people enlisting out of a sense of patriotism and obligation. You have men deployed all over the world. You have men that are not yet deployed that are in training is still in America, but they couldn't go home because their training took priority because they had to soon be deployed. And if you don't get them trained right, they're going to die. What that meant is there were a tremendous number of people in this country who were away from home when they would have usually been home at Christmas time. And there were even more people who, even though they were home, knew somebody that wasn't there that normally would have been. And this song's less about snow than it is about home. That's what this song's really about, just like the ones I used to know. It's about that feeling that we get around that time of year. But I'll tell you something about soldiers and sailors and Marines and airmen. It's a feeling they get often. When you're deployed overseas, even in peacetime, even in a relatively decent duty station, everything's different. Everything's foreign. 
Nothing's like it was. And there's certain times of the year that all you want is home. And I have to believe it was that longing that made this song the success that it was in 1942. And it's part of why it's still one of the most iconic songs and most popular songs ever written. So as you listen to this song today, even though Christmas was a month ago, try to put yourself into the position of families in 1942, just now coming out of the Depression. The Depression's in the rearview mirror at this point. There's so much mobilization toward the war. Even if you're still not doing that great, you feel like you're going to be doing better sometime, and there's bigger problems to worry about. Or a soldier that's sitting in some place like, I don't know, Fort Knox, Kentucky, being trained, that just can't go home. Maybe home's not even that far away. They just can't go. Or on a ship in the South Pacific. Or at a base in England, listening to the bombs fall from the Blitz just a few miles away. And this song comes on. And you'll understand why this was the number one hit of 1942. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. I'm dreaming of a Be mm-hmm.